It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Patience Adamu. And I'm Curtis Vermont. And this is The Drip a podcast by Black professionals for Black professionals about the political decision-making that affects us, our communities, and our allies. Stay tuned as we talk Canadian news and Black issues on a regular basis. And if you support our work to keep you informed, you know what to do. Subscribe. Today, we're honored to welcome business mogul, philanthropist, Dragon's Den investor, father, husband, and now author, Dr. Wes Hall, back to the trip. One of Canada's top business leaders through his work at Kingsdale Advisors, Wes is no stranger to the drip, having last joined us in the summer of 2021 to discuss his upbringing, his work, and advocacy efforts through the anti-racist organization he founded, Black North Initiative. Since launching in 2020, Black North has been working with Black communities in Canada to address the challenges and systemic barriers facing Black talent so that we are afforded equal opportunities to succeed like anyone else. Wes's book, No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot, simultaneously describes his experience with systemic racism in Canada while offering glimpses into the experiences of many Caribbean immigrants. Much more than a rags-to-riches story, it chronicles stories of abuse, neglect, love, and naivete. And we're pleased that he's here to chat about it, as well as his ongoing work to support Black advancement in Canada. Wes! It's good to have you back, Sir Wagwan. Bidea, bidea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm on the drip, man. You know, I, I must have done something right in my life because you guys have, are having me back. <laughs> <laughs> more, more things than one. How about that? I mean, yeah. I mean look, how's your tour been with this book so far? You've been experiencing a lot of success? It's been humbling. It's actually mm-hmm. been humbling. Could you imagine that walking into a room and there's like a thousand people in the room and everybody have a, a copy of your book and uh and and they're just lined up to uh to to record and to uh you know to to say something and to they, you know do an autograph and stuff and you gotta go look listen man i gotta go out i gotta go and, and <laughs> you know the, the room is it's not it's, it's like white folks in the room mm-hmm. you know yeah. it's not like you know people think you write a book like this and it's like black people i just came from a uh a book club uh last week and uh every single member of the book club it's all women and it's all white women mm-hmm. and wow. uh and they and that was my book that they were discussing at the book club and they wanted me there it's a very influential group of women and they wanted me there to talk about it and stuff like that so uh, it's it's very very humbling that you can write about poverty mm-hmm. and people kind of gravitate and get the story of different income levels right yeah. not just poor people not just black people but it just resonates with so many people that's powerful absolutely absolutely well we're, we're glad that you're back to to touch on it a little bit so why don't we jump right in you ready Let's do it. So, Wes, 
first, we want to congratulate you on your book. It's a contemporary Canadian piece of literature that successfully highlights a common Black Caribbean male experience. Personally, I uncovered new layers of understanding of my own personal experiences through the ones you described in your book. And I sincerely hope your readers picked up some cues about navigating the Canadian landscape as an immigrant. Tell me, what was your goal in penning no bootstraps when you're barefoot? I mean, is it that you wanted to provide a roadmap for some immigrant Canadians? Was it more than that? What were your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I mentioned in the book that it's really not a roadmap to, uh, mm-hmm. to be successful. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really essentially a roadmap as to what we should not allow to happen as a society. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, in, in, the, in the real world, in the, in the sports world, for example, they have these people called scouts on a, on a sports team, hockey teams, basketball team, baseball team. They, every single team has a scout, and that's a very important job that that scout has. Right. And what that scout does, he goes out to find talent, goes out to find talent. But he doesn't go to rich neighborhoods to find talent because those people have the means mm-hmm. to make sure that their, their talent comes to the masses. They have money, they have connections, they have everything. So those scouts go to really poor neighborhoods, and it's generally outside the country that the team is in. They go to places, poor places like in Africa, mm-hmm. in, uh, in, in, in South America, you name it. That's where they go. Because those people with that talent, it's untapped. They don't even know that they have that kind of talent. Right. They're stuck because, because of poverty. They have to look after their families. They have to drop out of school because they're poor. All those things. So those scouts find those people and then they bring them in on the team and they start to work really hard with them Mm -hmm. to get their true potential. And I go, could you imagine if we have scouts in corporate Canada? Mm. They would have found me in that tin shack in rural Jamaica. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have had to work as hard as I've had to work I wouldn't have gone through all the things that I've gone through to get my talent to be appreciated and recognized. Hmm. So I encourage people by, by writing a book to say, yeah, this is a hard life, but it's not fair that people have to go through that. And I hope that whoever is reading that can go, I'm going to make a difference in somebody's lives because I saw what happened and what's possible by reading Wes's life. Indeed, indeed. That, that's really an excellent way to, to think about that is that we don't do that. We don't go out uh, of our frame of reference, out of our country to, to find talent. And, and you know, your, your book is quite multifaceted in addition to what uh, you, you just raised. You share your successes and you really, really don't shy away from sharing the realities of poverty that you experienced in Jamaica as well. So I remember on page 28, you said, quote, to me, that juxtaposition shows in the simplest terms how unfair society has always been to the poor. It reminds me that now that I have means, I have to be different, end quote. And my question to you is, are, are you different? And, and in what ways do you think that you're different, if so? So people look down on poor people because they're poor. Mm-hmm. They have no means of helping themselves. Yeah. They have no means of taking themselves out of poverty. You know why? Because other people control those means. Poor <laughs> people control education. They control who they hire in their companies. 
And sometimes because you're poor and because in the neighborhood you're from, there's certain stigma and bias that's associated with that. So you don't get those opportunities. Absolutely. So could you imagine that you look down on the poor people who can't help themselves, but the rich person walking around so wealthy, doing so well for themselves, and they do an absolute zero to help anybody else. And we look up to those people mm-hmm. because of their wealth. We're using only one yardstick to measure those people, their wealth. And so I, I say it's, it's an odd thing because at the end of the day, we should not be looking down on poor people because we don't know what their potential is. Right. And we could be looking up to a rich person, but they could be the biggest jerk that you'll ever meet. And they will never do anything good to anybody but themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, you know, from the moment that um, I came to this country and the work that I had to put in to get to where I'm at today, you know, if it wasn't for my grandmother and because of that poverty condition that I grew up in, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be the human being that I am today. If you come into my office on Bay Street, the first thing that you see is the picture of the tin shack. And I use the term tin shack and people are going, come on, Wes, you know, you're exaggerating. Well, no. look, <laughs> <laughs> look, look at the picture. When it rains, okay, I can't sleep wow. because the zinc roof is making all this raucous that ultimately we had to learn how to get that to soothe us, to put us to bed. That's right. Before it was like, uh, I can't sleep because the zinc, is the, the roof is making too much noise. To the point where we got to the point where we got so used to it that we needed it to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. We needed to hear that, you know, when it rains, we look forward to the rain later on in life when I was growing up in that tin shack because we go, finally, it's going to put us to sleep. And so when you think about it, something that most people would go, man, this is terrible. It actually is something that we look at as a positive when you're in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I have no reason to show off my wealth. Zero reason to show off my wealth. But I have the ability to change lives with my wealth. I have the ability to help people who are in conditions that I'm in. I have the ability to now use my influence on Bay Street uh, to change the lives of people coming up after me. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in our society in Canada, there's just not a lot of people like us in those positions. And unfortunately, when some of us get there, we kind of forget what, uh, you know, what happened behind us. Yeah. And we don't make the change that we need to make because we get so comfortable. And that's what systemic racism is. Yeah. Systemic racism don't just let people who are underprivileged, uh, that are not under, underprivileged, get comfortable. Once you become, once you're no longer underprivileged and you become privileged, you now benefit from the system and you now become comfortable. And the system tells you, don't mess with the system now. And look at what we did for you. Don't yes. mess with it. Yes. You know how many people I talk to that say to me, Wes, why are you complaining about the system? Look at you. That's what I'm talking about. Whereby they go, why are you messing with a system that made you who you are? Well, I say to them, find me another 10 other West Halls or 100 other West Halls. And if you can't find me that many, then you recognize, you should recognize the fact that the system is indeed broken. Indeed. Yes. Yes. And this, I think that's a perfect segue into my next thought, because, I mean, we, we have been having a positive conversation about essentially paying it forward and providing opportunity for those who may not have had it. And still, throughout the book, you make very clear that resiliency and hard work are part of the ingredients to success. I mean, you point out through your grandmother, you point out through your father, so on and so forth. 
Now, regarding the Black North Pledge, you state that it's not about lowering the bar to accept lower quality talent. Rather, it's about giving more Black people the opportunity to demonstrate their value, thus developing further opportunities for everyone. I think the work of organizations like Black North would face less headwinds, let's say, if they were realized by, if that, what I just mentioned, were realized by more people. So how can we spread that message? That if Black people gain more opportunities, we all win. You know, I use uh, the Raptors as an analogy when, Mm. when when I present. And I go, you know, I'm a Raptors fan. I spend a lot of money. And uh, I'm at courtside. So I watched the action real close and personal. Mm-hmm. And when Nick Nurse was running, uh, when um, uh, Coach, uh, uh, what's his name? Dwayne Casey, Casey was running mm-hmm. the team. I would get frustrated with Dwayne because I'm looking at these starters that are just tired, man. And these and all these bench players are just itching to play and he wouldn't mm-hmm. put them in the game. He was just sticking with his starters. And as the season progresses, what happens is the knees aren't performing the same way as uh, game one. They get tired. Especially when, they get tired, especially when you get into the uh, the first round and they get into the second round. Mm-hmm. Those old knees, man, they just start giving up. So you're not shooting, drop, dropping your shots anymore. And, and you have these fresh legs on the bench and the man is like, I'm not putting them in because I'm just going to stick with my starters. Mm-hmm. And, and so when Messiah eventually got fed up with that, and he fired Coach Casey. Coach Casey was Coach of the Year when he got fired. Mm-hmm. Coach of the Year. Okay, Toronto wanted to tar and feather Masai to get him out of town because they're like, how dumb can you be? Mm-hmm. You got rid of the Coach of the Year, and then you put Nick Nurse, who was an assistant coach, never coach, head coach in the NBA in his life, and you put him in as the head coach for the Toronto Raptors. What are you doing? But he had the vision. The first order of business for Nick Nurse was when the starters got tired, he put the bench players in. The bench players became the starters because we won the championship that year because we used all our talent. We used the entire bench. That's what we're doing in the world today because we're saying the starters are certain people that meet certain qualifications, that look a certain way, that went to a certain school. We're just going to stick with them. Mm. And then we have economic upheaval. We have Mm -hmm. problems in our society. We have uh, climate issues. We have uh, COVID issues. We have job dislocation. We have all these different problems in our society. We can't find talent. We can't find talent because the people that you're looking for, it's the same people, but yet we have all this talent running around. For example, we have a lot of problems in the healthcare system. A lot. Mm -hmm. Can't find doctors, can't find nurses, especially after COVID. Guess where the doctors and nurses are? The doctors are driving Ubers and taxicabs. That's right. Speak it. Okay. Because we take them from their country, practicing medicine, doing very well. And keep yes. in mind, to get to this country, you have to get there on a point system. That means that the better you are where you are, the better, the more we want you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you get the most points to get to this country. Back in the day, when we're bringing immigrants from Europe here, we're getting all the poor immigrants. Mm-hmm. That were fleeing poverty to come here. We gave them land. We set them up nicely. We looked yep. after them. Today, we're getting economic immigrants, people who are doing very well in their country, yet undermining them. And as a result, that we bring them here, and we don't integrate them. Yep. We allow doctors to drive taxicabs. We love engineers to be janitors. Yep. And so, what we're saying is, 
that if you have an inclusive society, an inclusive workforce, how is it going to hurt you when you have a shortage of doctors and you're bringing doctors over here and putting them to work right away? How is that hurting you? In fact, it's helping you. Exactly. How is it hurting you when you have a business person who is an entrepreneur in their country and you're giving them credit immediately when they come into this country, you don't wait for them to have so-called Canadian experience first. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is that diversity is not asking for a favor. You're not doing a favor to the black person because you hired them. You're actually doing a favor to your company because your company is going to be better. That's, That's right. it. Yep. That's right. And it's, it's interesting that you're pointing that out too. Uh, maybe last week, uh, the Toronto Foundation, as well as the Enveronics Institute, they they released data from a report that was compiled last fall. Uh, it's called Everyday Racism, Experiences of Discrimination in Toronto. And it, that, that report basically shows that Black Canadians are still getting the short end of the stick, particularly because we are treated as if we are not smart and lack capacity. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're spot on. we got to change that. Listen, I, I live the experience. Mm-hmm. I live the yep. experience. And that's the reason why, you know, I still to this day... Uh, walk into rooms in spite of all my accomplishments I got Canadian Business Leader of the Year mm-hmm. Ontario Chamber of Commerce Lifetime Achievement Award I have five honorary doctorates and mm-hmm. I still walk into a room where people think I'm not capable yeah I hear you story of our lives and it's the people who haven't accomplished a fraction of what you've accomplished in your capabilities exactly Right, yeah. and that's the, the and that's and 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 if you ask the question, why is that? Is there is race has nothing to play with that? Is maybe it's my pop my my impoverished background that I started from? Maybe it's because of my Jamaican accent. I don't know what it is, but there is a bias that causes someone to behave that way. Right, and we need to identify what that bias is because that bias exists in companies and in positions where those people are making important decisions as to who gets into the organization and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. And if we don't identify and treat that bias, we're always going to be holding our society back, holding black people back, holding indigenous people back, holding people of color back, holding immigrants back is holding our country back. Period. Full stop. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. On page 101, you reflected on your initial run-in with a, a Toronto police officer where you said, quote, whether he'd been profiling me to that point, I don't know. The offer seemed genuine, but I only wanted to get away from him. You just searched me and interrogated me, and now you want me to get in the back of a patrol car so you can take me somewhere? No, I'm good, I answered. <laughs> I'll just wait for the next bus. Thank you. He left, and that's what I did. Steve's mom had waited for me, end quote. Uh, This story to me is the epitome of being black in this country. Yeah, I felt that. And sometimes even more so as a a black woman, I think it's even more the, the story of being a black man in this country. And it, it, what, the way that I can kind of capture it is that it involves experiencing so much frustration, but managing it in a way that, nobody sees it does not show you know and i love how in your story you couched the encounter with the police officer in your reflection your personal reflection of wanting to become a police officer 
and showing how you lacked the, the 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 trauma context experience that most Black Canadians who were born and raised in Canada would have had with police. You you didn't have that because you had just recently come from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So my my question is, do you think that the fact that you were a new Canadian at the time was the reason why you were able to manage that frustration so well? And do you think maybe that the story is a little too forgiving of and turns too much of a blind eye to the the really long-standing issues we have of carding in the city of Toronto? Let, let me say this categorically. If I wasn't from Jamaica, I probably wouldn't be here today. If okay. I wasn't raised in Jamaica, I probably wouldn't be as successful as I am today. Yep. I wouldn't be. I don't think I would be at all. Even though I was poor in Jamaica, there are certain things that I saw. When I went to school, all the school teachers were black. The principal of the school was black. In the community that I was in, every single police officer was black. Mm-hmm. The sergeant to the police station was black. When we go to the hospital, the nurses were black. The doctors were black. If we get into trouble in the neighborhood and we went to court, the lawyer defending us was black. The judge was black. All the politicians in our neighborhood was black and the, pol- and, and the prime minister at the time was black. Mm-hmm. So to me, the only thing preventing me from being one of those people was my poverty. Mm-hmm. My grandmother didn't have the money to send me to school. Keep in mind that to once you write the common, exam, uh, common entrance exam in Jamaica and you get into high school, you have to pay for high school. Mm-hmm. We couldn't afford that. So I could never dream of becoming a judge, a lawyer, a doctor. I'm going to work like my grandmother worked on a plantation for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. When I came to this country, poverty was no longer an obstacle. Education was, uh, was a right that I had. I could get a job after. And if I work hard enough and I play the system the right way, I could get promoted. And you remember mm-hmm. I said... Uh, Play the system. I, I heard that loud and clear, my friend. Yeah, loud and clear. It is a system. Ben okay. said the same thing. So, so as a result of that, when somebody looked at me when I'm climbing that ladder and told me that I'm not going to get to where I want to get to because I'm black, I'm like, really? I experienced those people. I saw those people doing those things when I was in Jamaica. So why can't I? Mm-hmm. And so, but my brothers and sisters that were born in this country, they got the message as soon as somebody told them what they can't do. They were all educated. They went to nice school. My, my, we were from middle-class family when I came here. Mm-hmm. And they all went to university. They all graduated in some cases with honors degree. But they never got to my level. Because from the moment they went to school, they saw no representation of themselves. And every place in society that they interacted with, they saw no representation of themselves in positions of authority. Mm-hmm. So the message was heard loud and clear from very early where you fit into society. At the bottom. And so being an immigrant, when I came here, and even though I've experienced that situation with a police officer, I go, well, in Jamaica, there were good cops that I saw, amazing police officers. From I wanted to be a police officer from when I was a kid in Jamaica because I respected them. Right. So I'm not going to use one bad encounter to completely change my view of what that position should be. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. Right? And so that's the reason why ultimately I tried out for the police force because, yeah. you know, A, to appease my dad, but B, because 
from a kid, I respected those people. I loved the uniform. I loved the way that the community looked up to them because there were people of standing in our community. They weren't there to brutalize and to hurt the community. They were actually there to do what their motto says, to serve and protect. And that's what I liked about them. Indeed. Hmm. You know, you kind of touch on something that I'd like to explore, but from a different angle. You wrote about it in your book. Um, the gentleman's name was Warren Jeffers while you were at CIBC Mellon, right? Warren Jensen, yeah. Warren Jensen. There we go. Yeah. So it, I, 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 I was very intrigued by that story. I remember telling Tamika and, and just, you know, engaging about it deeply with her because it's one of those things where that experience for you is a reality for so, so, so many. And I noticed how you were successful in flipping Warren from being your worst enemy to, as yeah. you mentioned, your best ally. Could you speak a bit on that? And, 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 you know, I, I really want people to kind of grasp the story or, or the, the, the value from the story. So I got this job to be the director of uh, senior manager of client relations at uh, CIBC Mellon Trust Company. Mm -hmm. I was like 25 years old. Keep in mind, and, and I never had a management job before. I left Canvas Global. I sold the, uh, the HR. And by the way, I probably should back up a little bit. So they wanted to hire, I, I applied for a position because I knew somebody within the company. It's, it's a big yep. company, CIBC Mellon. It's a joint venture between Mellon Bank and CIBC Bank. Yep. And, uh, and I got interviewed uh, for the position, for a position. And uh, they, 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 the manager told me that uh, there is one position is you come in at this level. And then we're going to create another position, which is at a higher level than that position. And that person on the first position is going to report into the person on the second, right? Mm -hmm. And so she said, what we're going to do is I'm going to bring you in on that first level. And then once we restructure, we're going to move you up to the, to the, to the top. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't trust enough that because I recognize the fact that sometimes companies bring you in like that and then things change, the boss right. gets fired, they change their mind, they don't like you now that they start working with you and you never get to move up. You never get that promise fulfilled. Mm -hmm. So I said to her, I'm not interested in that, that Just when you create that position in restructure, give call me a call. Me back. Right? Call me back, man. Yeah, man. And, and literally six months later, she called me back and said, we restructured and want to bring you in in that position. Here I am, a 25-year-old black dude, and I'm back on Bay Street now. Keep in mind, when I left, when I was on Bay Street the first time, I was in a mailroom. Mm -hmm. Now I went to Canvas Global, got a little bit of experience now I'm back in mailroom. I'm now a senior manager and 11 people reporting to me, including this gentleman, Warren, who was mm. in his 50s. Mm. Okay, I'm 25. Now, this man's been at the bank for 30 years. Mm -hmm. 30. He's a middle-aged white man. He fits all the parts, the boxes that you check on Bay Street. All of them. Mm -hmm. I didn't check any of them. Mm. None. I walk into a room, nobody's going to assume that I'm the manager, I'm, I'm, I'm running the show. Nobody. They're going to automatically assume that it's him. Mm -hmm. So what I recognized right away was with his 30 years experience and me having zero, I need him more than he needs me. Mm -hmm. So I have to humble myself mm -hmm. in order for me to get the knowledge that he has. Mm -hmm. So even though he was very arrogant and he was very upset, the fact very that rude. they hired a black guy... I'm like, okay, fine. I can't be angry. He has the right to be angry. I would have been angry if somebody brought in somebody, you know, 30 years my junior to manage me. 
That's right. right. And with zero experience, any reasonable person would be upset at that. Absolutely. So I found a way to get him to become an ally to me so that he can pass his knowledge on down to me. So when I went into meetings, for example, with clients, as soon as we walk in, they automatically assume that he was the boss and I let him be the boss in that meeting. That's right. And I gave him the dignity that he thought he deserved by me playing a subservient role to him. And after the guy saw it a few times, he just said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you, I'm going to teach you what I know. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. Sometimes as black people, we let our, sometimes our chip on our shoulder, and I, I know I mentioned something to that effect in the room. We let the chip on our shoulder inform the way that we behave and it hurts us when it we does. do that. Yes. And yes. if we just kind of take that chip off a little bit and not be suspicious of every single person and not be yes. suspicious that every single situation is a racist situation. Yes. We're going to open our minds to learning so much more about people. And we're going to identify the people who truly want to help us. Indeed. And that's what I did. Indeed. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Moving on. I mean, in, in chapter 19 you highlight that you made a calculated risk to speak up after George Floyd's murder, sensing, like many others, that a shift had occurred, one that could allow for meaningful action on systemic racism. Of course, it's led to numerous changes from over, you know, there's like a billion dollars in programs that have either been announced or allocated by the federal government for supporting Black advancement, to the work being done by Black North and other initiatives as well. Still, though, It's clear that interest in combating systemic racism has waned since 2020, even if only for us, as opposed to, for example, our Asian brethren. Do you think we, that's government, business, not-for-profits, public, all of us, do you think we have allocated enough resources to improve the lives of Blacks on a monumental scale? And if not, how do we develop those resources? And I'm specifically thinking about the pledge that the 500-plus companies signed up for uh, speak to that a little bit, maybe. Uh, first of all, we have not allocated enough resources towards the issue. Full stop. So, so full stop, full stop, okay? Keep in mind, when we're talking about gender diversity and getting women recognized in boardrooms and in C-suites and in places of authority and positions across the country, uh, it took a while and it's still going because there were not a lot of resources allocated towards it. Mm-hmm. Today, what we have is we we call it DEI or EDI, whatever you want to call it in your organization, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Department. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, we notice now, for example, especially in the United States, they're actually eliminating that department altogether. And uh, because they put it on with not good intent, they want to make sure that, uh, you know, people see that they're doing something, but when they, they, the eyeballs are off them, they quietly get rid of those departments. Um, so positions, uh, so you could have maybe one person in a 10,000 organization company looking after DEI. How could that be possible? Yeah. How could that be? Being That's a whole department in itself. If you really are intentional about it and you really believe that this is something important to your organization, mm-hmm. it's a lot of work. It's almost like, you know, you're doing an acquisition of a company and it's going to be company transforming. And you just go, I'm going to just put two people to work on this big company transforming deal. We don't do that. No way. What you have, you have, not only do you have people internally, forces internally working on this deal, you go out and you get advisors, lawyers, bankers, tax people, PR people, all kinds of people to bring additional resources to deal with that issue because it's so important to the company. Right. I can tell you this, if, you, if the DEI lead in the company walk into the CEO's office in a lot of cases and say, I need more resources, they probably wouldn't get it. I need outside help. They probably wouldn't get it for the companies who are not intentional. Mm-hmm. The companies who are intentional, by the way, which we have a lot of them in Black North. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you see all our sponsors and all the people that support Black North, they see the same names keep coming up. You'll, you'll see them. If you go to blacknorth.ca, you'll see all our program sponsors, all the people doing great things. They're not just uh, giving lip service to DEI. It is, they're transforming their businesses and giving the resources that that department needs to actually get the job done because they see the benefit of it. Yeah. So I would say that a lot of people aren't given the resources uh, that it needs because it's important. Now, are we seeing change in our society? I would say if we had saw what happened to George Floyd in 2020, We had the perfect opportunity to do something. We saw the reaction that people had to what was going on in our community. And we saw all the people who said, I want to help you. Mm -hmm. And if we did not take advantage of that, shame on us. Yep. Yep. And because of the fact that we're comfortable, remember you you mentioned, uh, Curtis, that about my concern about what would happen to me if I speak up. Yeah. A lot of us don't speak up, even in companies that are not doing the work. You know what happens, I, what I hear? People call me up from within companies and say, Wes, you know, my company signed a Black North Pledge and they're doing nothing. So what are you going to do? Mm. I'm like, what are you going to do? <laughs> do something about it, right? You want me to do your dirty work for you? I did the work already to get That's them right. to move. Now it's up to you to get them to move further because you're inside. And then they go, well, my position is going to be at risk. When John Lewis and Martin Luther King was in in Alabama crossing the bridge and they saw police officers with guns and told them and dogs and said, if you cross this bridge, not only we're going to beat you, you're probably going to die and we're going to put you in prison. And they crossed the bridge. They knew that they had stuff at stake. And so even though you may think about it, you still got to go and do the work and deal with the consequence of it because it's the right thing to do. So if your company signed a pledge and they're not doing anything, it's now your responsibility to hold them accountable, not mine. I'm on the outside. You're on the inside. You're feeling the pain. I'm not. You know, so that's what I encourage people to do. 
is that they have more power than they think they do. Yep. If you're one black person in a company, you have way more power than you think you do. Use it. Don't just sit there and complain about what's happening and have other people do your dirty work for you. You use that power. And that's what I've been able to do throughout my entire career. When I see things that's not right, I go, I got to say something about it. And even if it comes to at a cost to me, I still got to do it. But then you do it, you say something, and then people from the community going, well, look at him, he's benefiting because of Black North. He's like, you know, if it wasn't for Black North, he wouldn't be doing this and these. But they didn't think about the potential financial cost and personal cost and reputational yep. cost and family cost yep. that that has when you're speaking up when nobody else is. And they yeah. are huge costs. They are huge. Yes. Yes. Switching gears a little bit. Um, I like how you got real there. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, honestly, as as someone who, and the, the, the audience knows, I, I work in the EDI space. I'm I'm a director for, um, you know, in this, in this world. And you're absolutely right. Hiring one or two people to disrupt an entire company doesn't work. That's not how this works. Yeah. So everybody's got to really step it up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Real, really real. <laughs> so, Wes, <laughs> when you last joined uh, us on the pod, we discussed your role on, on Dragon's Den yeah. and how that would be in relation to ensuring that Black entrepreneurship gets a boost through you. Yeah. As you put it then, uh, I your job that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Meaning that you will take on the responsibility of promoting and indeed investing in Black entrepreneurship. I'm curious, do you have any figures that highlight uh, how many Black entrepreneurs you've helped since being on the show? Well, you know, first of all, Patience, a uh, uh, good try on the Jamaican there. <laughs> <laughs> I am a Nigerian. <laughs> I am really trying. That's a good try. That's a good try. I give you, I give you an A on that one there. Man. We'll, we'll give her a bligh, right? <laughs> I'll give you a bligh. I'll give you a bligh. I'll give you a bligh. I feel the job that. I feel the job that. That's what I want you to say next time. I feel the job that. <laughs> so, but like, so I started, I just launched We Shall Investments. We Shall Investments uh, came from Martin Luther King's speech back in 1968, where he says, you know, we shall overcome because the, the, the arc of, of, of the moral universe is long, but it but bends it towards justice. Indeed. Okay. So we shall, that expression, I took it. And I go, I'm going to go back to the roots of what he was trying to do. There's three things that he was trying to end in society. And he said, if we deal with those three scourges in our society, we're going to have a better society. Poverty is one of them that I've experienced. Racism is another that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. And violence, which I've experienced, all three. He said, if we address those things, we're going to be better. And economically, if we're, you know, poverty, if we you know, get out of poverty, we become successful or semi-successful, poverty is cured. Okay, for us individually, for me, right? Mm -hmm. Now, how do I cure racism? I can't because I can't prevent somebody from hating me. But I can actually deal with the systemic issues that cause them to be put in positions where they can affect me because they're Black. Mm -hmm. So that's why I talk about the Black North Initiative and how we can deal with anti-Black issues, right? And then violence, we see all the things going on in our society. We can't even take the subway without worrying about being killed. Yeah. in our society and it's because of all the inequalities that we see in our society and the lack of treating the problems that we see like yes. you know poverty like uh, mental health 
And yeah. all those things are now creating that violence that we see. And we think we're going to just enforce our way out of that. We can't. Mm-hmm. We have to come up with different ways to, to, to resolve those issues. So I go, if I can now use, and so I create this We Shall investment. Then it just so happened that if you break it down, it's West Hall. Okay. And so that's it, you know. <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting. <laughs> for the smart people out there, you know, I didn't have to. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of people listening to the pod right now, so I got to break it down for them. And you know, so so when I think about it, I was born to do this. I was born to do what I'm doing. I was born in poverty to understand poverty. I I would experience violence at the hands of my mother and others because I want to know what it's like for people to go through violence. And I've experienced racism, so I understand what it's like to be treated a certain way because of the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. And, and to and go an extent further, I'm an immigrant, so I appreciate what it's like to come to a country and be new and don't speak the language well and having to be discriminated against. So I understand those things. So it set me up for when I see somebody come in front of me to pitch me, none of those biases exist in my mind when I'm looking at that person. Mm-hmm. I'm not sitting there going, man, that accent. I don't know if I can stand that accent. I can't work with that person. That accent mm-hmm. is too thick. I'm not going to go into black people. I don't know. Black people, they're not successful. They're not, they're, they're not educated. I don't have that bias. You know, and if the person told me that they came from a really back, you know, an abusive background, I'm not going to say, man, I don't want somebody who's been abused in here. Mm-hmm. I don't have any of those biases. So guess what? All I can look at now is the person's business and their idea and them. Period. No other biases that are there for me to judge whether or not this person is capable. I look at your business plan. I look at you. I ask you a bunch of questions. And if it works out, bam. So I've supported, if you go to the Black North website, I mean, the uh, the, the We Shall website, you'll see a whole bunch of BIPOC entrepreneurs that have supported. Mm-hmm. BIPOC, Black people, people of color. You know, they're all there. They're businesses that I support. It's not exclusively. There's mm-hmm. other businesses that are good businesses that are not run by BIPOC people that I support. But primarily, if you are a BIPOC person and you come in front of me, there will be absolutely no bias in terms of looking at your business decision, uh, business I, I plan. None. Are you capable? Are you likable? Are you the right person to execute this plan? Is there a, a product market fit? And uh, is there a proper valuation that you're asking for? And if all those things check, you're going to get a check uh, a check from uh, from We Shall Investments. And not only are you going to get a check, but you're going to get uh, mentorship to get to your businesses. So if you if you talk to any of the entrepreneurs that you see on our website, just call up the principals and say, how instrumental was the We Shall team in you becoming an entrepreneur and you get to the level where you are? And they'll tell you their unbiased view in terms of what we've done for them. Indeed, indeed. Now, of course, since this is a political pod, we can't let you go without getting your insights on Toronto's mayoral race. So I'm curious, what were your thoughts when you heard the news about John Tory's affair? And then far more importantly, what were your thoughts? What are your thoughts on who should take the mayor's seat? We've got black candidates like former MP Selena Caesar Chavan. We've got former police chief Mark Saunders. We've got MPP Mitzi Hunter. And then we've also got other candidates like Councillor Brad Bradford, uh, Olivia Chow, and Anna Bailao. So do you have a short list or a particular preference? Where are you right now? Yeah. So the first question you asked was, what did I think about, you know, what caused Mayor Tory uh, to resign? Uh, first well, of all, I- 
not what, not what, not what caused him to resign. But what did you think yeah. overall? Just what, 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 what I think, you know, listen, you know, Councillor Thompson uh, was accused uh, just a few months before that. Indeed. Uh, certain things that he denied. Mm-hmm. And he was asked by the mayor to resign as deputy mayor, mm-hmm. which he did. Now, those things were not proven. They were just allegations. Right. Um, in, the, in the corporate world, in my world, if I have any kind of affair, consensual or otherwise, with anyone that's uh, either at my level or below me, mm. uh, I, am, I would be forced to resign my position at the company. Mm. Any business, any publicly traded company, that's the deal. It's, everybody knows that. In fact, it's written in policy. Mm-hmm. So when you're in leadership, you're held at a higher standard when it comes to morality, higher mm-hmm. standard. And even if I wasn't married and I had those relationships, the consequences would still be the same. Mm. And so we can say, but Wes is doing a great job. Give him a pass when he does this. The rules are clear. Mm. And if we break those rules, the consequences are also clear to us. Right. And, you know, so I'm not suggesting that I'm perfect. We're not perfect. That's the reason why those rules are there. (laughs) If everybody was perfect, you wouldn't need the rules because nobody would be doing it. So the rules are there to say, yes, we're not perfect, but I want to give you some guidelines. And if you follow these guidelines, then chances are you're not going to do these things. Okay. So to me, what happened there is just what naturally happens in any single company in corporate America, corporate Canada, that if you, uh, you know, use your power in a certain way, uh, even if it's uh, consensual or otherwise, that uh, there are certain consequences that comes with that. So I think Mayor Tory did the honorable thing mm-hmm. and, and resigned from the position. Um, mm-hmm. Now, with respect to the field, I am thrilled to see that we have a broad field. I'm thrilled. The last election, while well, we had like two, essentially two front runners, Mayor Tory, and I forgot who the other person is, so essentially one. <laughs> He's back I was going to say who? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so as a result of that, you only have one point of view, mm-hmm. only one point of view to choose from. And when you have one point of, point of view to choose from, that's not a choice. Exactly. Now we have potentially 10 different point of views to choose from, 10. Mm-hmm. And we can now determine, given all the problems in the city, it's great to have that many point of views to choose from as to who are going to attack the city with the best plan. Now I can look at the best plan and the best person to execute the plan. You notice I didn't talk about gender. I didn't talk about ethnicity. I didn't talk yeah. about race. I didn't talk about sexual orientation. That's I didn't right. talk about any of those things. That's right. I didn't say I want a black mayor or I want a female mayor. I did Who not say most that. effective. I want to get the plan first. And once I see the plan and then I look at the person behind the plan to see who, if they have the ability to execute it. That's right. The, the previous question you asked me was when I look at investment, what do I look at? I look at the business and look at the person running it because you could have the best business plan, but if you're the wrong person to run it, it doesn't matter. That business will not be successful. For example, why do you have one clothing store across the street like um, Colts Renfrew that's still around and Woolworths is out of business or Eaton's is out of business? Why? They're still selling the same product. They're selling clothing, retail clothing. Why Hudson's Bay been around since the 1600s, still today? Mm-hmm. But every single company that set up the same time doing exactly what they're doing, they've been out of business uh, centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Because the people executing business plan are different people. 
So it's the same thing when I look at politicians and look at their plan. I'm like, the plan may be great, but if I don't write, have the right person behind the plan, it doesn't matter. That's right. So I look at the plan and then I go, okay, fine. The plan looks solid. Is this person the right person to execute on that plan? Because once you get into politics, now you start to please 100 people, right? And then your plan becomes diluted. And all of a sudden, you look at that plan five years out or two years out, and it doesn't even have any resemblance to what you wanted to do because you didn't have the conviction to execute on your plan. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I want to see, who the people are, what their plan is, who they are, and third, who's behind them. Because usually the people who are behind them are going to be very influential in them executing whatever plan that they're going to put forward. That's right. And so that's what I look at first. I think having the diversity of, you know, is absolutely incredible and amazing. You know, personally, I would like to see a diverse person in that role, mm-hmm. but I would like to see a diverse person with the right plan in that role. Mm-hmm. And, and similar uh, to the last question, this is more so related to provincial politics, particularly with the Ontario Liberal Party, since they're the only party that's in this phase at the moment. Have you been observing, uh, paying attention to any of the people who have been considering running for leader of that party? And if so, what are your thoughts? No, I, I actually have not. You know, unfortunately, the party has been decimated. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> it, it has to be rebuilt. You know, yeah. and that's what happens when you, when in in the public's mind, they they weren't listened to. You're out of touch, or you abuse the trust that you're given. They were yeah. you're you're given by them, is that they you're punished for a very long time, mm-hmm. because people always remember what you did that was contrary to what they expected from you. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, as you know, rebuilding any party takes a lot of work and a lot of time and finding the right people with the right conviction is going to be critical for that party to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it may not be, you know, uh, because we saw what happened in the last election, quite frankly, a lot of people were surprised that they didn't do better, right? but they shouldn't be surprised because of the fact that people's memories are long. Yeah. Also right, and you know, and so as a result of that, they may not, uh, they may say, "Well, we don't really like the current guy, but man, he's not as bad as what we had before." That's right. So let's just stick with him. And as a result of that, he got even more vote than he wanted. And you know, so I think you know when that party needs to rebuild, and they need to put people you know uh, forward that are that you know will earn people's confidence and trust because they have a history of getting that. Yeah, so so it, it's interesting because we had a uh, board meeting yesterday. That's so our, our our board meeting, and we know that a number of people have signed the, the pledge, and mm-hmm. um, and a number of them are doing amazing work, and some are not. Mm-hmm. And we have to make a decision as an organization as to whether or not we're going to allow the ones that are doing nothing to drag down the ones that are doing something. Right, you know. It's kind of like in school where you have these kids that are not doing really well and it just brings down the GP of the entire class, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if you kind of, you know, sit down with those kids and figure out what they're doing wrong or why they're not doing the, the, the work the way it's supposed to be done and you work with them, but to the extent that they don't want to work with you, 
you got to appreciate the fact that you're not going to bring down my GPA. Mm-hmm. Right. You're going to be getting out of this class. That's right. And and I think that's where we, you know, as an organization uh, where we're playing is that we're willing to work with everybody who signed that pledge. But to the extent that people are not willing to do the work, even though we're trying to help them, we're just going to ask them to take your name off and uh, and move on. But I don't want you to tread on the good name of the people doing such great work to get us to where we are right now. Yep. The goals are pretty lofty that we have as, at Black North. It's not just about getting black people in board roles and executive roles. It's about changing the way black people are perceived in this country, mm-hmm. perceived. And uh, so it's a big job. It means, you know, economic empowerment. It means getting loans to black businesses. It means getting houses to black families. It really means changing the mindset of how we're perceived. And it starts at the top because if we have enough people at the top, that are part of the decision-making process, then they can understand what those people at the bottom are going through. If you have me on the board making a decision about poverty, I don't think poor people would have anything to worry about. They wouldn't. Because at the end of the day, the only reason why I'm there in that decision-making role is because I earned it because of, I came out of poverty. I became successful. So now they put me in a role to help deal with poverty. And guess what? I now can, uh, you know, give a, a, an advice or two versus the person who never experienced poverty in their life because they're going to be around the table as well. Yeah. But if I'm not there and it's only those people there, how are they going to understand poverty and violence? If we're going to deal with this, the, the problems of violence in the city, right? And we have no one who've experienced violence before. I had a brother who was murdered. Yeah. I went yeah. to identify him. He was found in a dumpster. And I had to identify his body and buried him. You know, like if, if you never experienced that before, how are you going to understand when somebody got stabbed and killed on the subway mm-hmm. and then you got to talk to the mother mm-hmm. or the family of that kid that just got murdered? How do you yeah. deal with that? And if you don't understand mental illness, how are you going to understand what caused that person to stab that kid in the first place? Mm-hmm. How are you going to understand that? You're just going to go lick a lock him up. But how does that solve the problem? Because somebody else is going to stab another kid who has the same problem. You're going to lock him up too. You're going to fill the prisons because you haven't solved the problem. Because you don't understand what the problem is. Because you've never experienced it before. So when I make decisions, those are the things I think about. And I use my lived experience to guide me in the right way. Wes, as always, this has been an incredible conversation. And we're so happy you can make your return to the drip. For those who haven't picked it up yet, I I have to urge you, urge. urge you to pick up No Bootstraps When You're Barefoot from wherever you get your books. It is an incredible read. You think it's going to be, you know, a self-help book. It is not. It is so much more of a incredible chronicling weaved in with uh, his thoughts on systemic racism, weaved in with some really touching, deep, heartfelt stories, and you will read it more than once. That's how good it is at different parts of your life. I can I can see myself, you know, in five, ten years, picking it up and reading it again because I will be at a different point in my life. It's an incredible book. Mm-hmm. You've just listened to episode 96 of The Drip. 
We're releasing pods on a monthly basis, so subscribe to stay up to date. You can also keep up with us on our Instagram and through our Patreon pages dedicated to the podcast. Follow us or support us at The Drip T.O. You know, we love our many non-Black, non-BIPOC listeners, but a message specifically to our Black listeners, we hope that you know that this is a safe space for you. So if you have any feedback or questions, feel free to slide in our DMs and let us know what's up. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Toronto's very own Be On Location for the sounds you're hearing now. You can find more tracks from him wherever you get your music. Thanks again to Dr. Wes Hall of the Black North Initiative for joining us. Patience, Curtis, you guys are the best. Uh, Thanks for having me again. Peace. See (laughs) y'all. See y'all next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.